Welcome to the Rural Insights Podcast, where we explore rural actions and policies that impact Michigan's Upper Peninsula and beyond. This podcast is brought to you by the Rural Insights Institute, working to ensure that rural citizens and policymakers alike have the information necessary to make good decisions. If you'd like to learn more about Rural Insights, visit ruralinsights.org. Now, here's your host, David Haynes. Good morning, everybody. This is another edition of uh, Rural Insights Podcast, and uh, we are uh, going to combine today a little bit with our, our Rural Voices feature and a, a uh, renowned person on a substantive topic. So we're welcome you all, and we'd like to welcome to join us today Robert Hilton, who is the uh, Foreign Service Foreign Policy Advisor, the Chief of Staff of the army right Correct. now did i get that right you did absolutely and uh robert welcome thank you for doing this uh so tell us a little bit you grew up in marquette went to marquette high school is that absolutely correct? marquette senior high class of 1983 and we just had our 40th high school reunion god help me it doesn't seem that long ago yeah yeah it's really amazing how fast it goes and and from there you went to the university of michigan i did and I uh, studied history. You were a history major. So tell us a little bit how that evolved. Uh, you know, for our listeners, we, we um, Robert went into the Foreign Service, and, and I think right out of college, right? right Correct. Out of, and has had a very distinguished career all around the world, uh, working in our embassies and, and consulates and, and other Foreign Service assignments. So how did this history major from Marquette High School class of 83, graduate U of M and decide on foreign service? It was a it was a lucky break, you might say. I had a professor at Michigan, a professor of history, who had been in the foreign service uh, and had resigned during the Vietnam War for reasons of conscience. He, he felt he couldn't advocate for those policies. But he said, aside from that, it's a good career. Uh, and uh, And I didn't know what else I might do with my history degree. I will say just parenthetically, perhaps, that a history degree, I think, is a great preparation for a lot of different careers. Um, you learn to, to think, to analyze, to research, to process ideas, to reproduce ideas. I think it's a great grounding for many things. And in my case, it turned out to be a good grounding for, for what has now been a 35-year career as a Foreign Service officer. So how did you tell, tell especially for families that listen to us that may have a, a child, a, a student who wants to sort of they think might want to look at foreign service how do you take that step from does that happen in your junior year your senior year and you take the foreign service exam what's that process the first step is absolutely taking the foreign service exam um, and the department of state has a pretty decent website i believe it's careers.state.gov uh, which explains how the foreign service officer test is administered it's a two or three stage process it starts with a an online test, a lot of multiple choice. Uh, you submit some essays and personal information. And then a smaller group who pass that first round are invited into an intense all-day uh, sort of oral examination process. I will say that I, I always tell people, if you're at all interested, go ahead and take the test because it's the first step. It is, I believe, still free. Um, and our hiring process can take a long time um, for various reasons. So. 
you know, I did take the test my junior year. I took it again my senior year and improved my score, which gave me a better chance of getting hired. Um, there are, of course, plenty of people who do this uh, after obtaining a master's, after a few years in the professional world. And there are people who take on the Foreign Service as, as a second career. Uh, members of the military who have served 20 years in the armed forces then come over to state. Uh, people who've had careers in academia, in journalism, in, in education. We've had lawyers, ad execs, all sorts of people decide that they want to represent the United States as a, as a second career. So wherever you are in life, I urge you to consider it. Well, somebody who is, uh, as you just said, is, uh, has been a teacher, a professor, uh, a lawyer, and they're about ready to retire. They're 50. They could take the Foreign Service exam and apply for a position. You can. Uh, we do have a mandatory retirement age of 65. Yes. So people should bear that in mind when they consider if they want to embark upon it. But there are certainly people who do come in at the age of 50 or 55 and do two or three overseas assignments, have that great experience, uh, and then and then move on to other things. So tell, so, so tell our listeners, what are some of the some of the uh, assignments you've had worldwide? Where where have you been that you can tell us? Where where have you been? No secrets. It's all on my LinkedIn profile, I think. Um, I started out in the Middle East at Michigan. I studied, uh, I say, history with a focus on the modern Middle East, political science, history, uh, international relations, and I spoke Arabic reasonably well. So I spent uh, three years in the Middle East, in Tunisia, uh, then North Yemen, and Saudi Arabia. Uh, including serving in Saudi Arabia during the first Gulf War when uh, Saddam Hussein was launching Scud missiles at, at Riyadh, the Saudi Arabian capital. Uh, my former wife was also in the Foreign Service, uh, and she was an East Asia, East Asia specialist, pardon me. So when we got married, we needed to find places we could serve together, which led us first to Dhaka, Bangladesh, where we spent three years. And then we were in Moscow, Russia for four years in the 1990s. Um, following that, we came back to Washington, D.C. for a number of domestic tours. We went to Sweden together, Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, we turned to Washington. Uh, and then as, as the marriage and our careers began to diverge, uh, I went and served in Kabul, Afghanistan as the U.S. Embassy spokesperson. Well, all times in Kabul were periods of, of violence and danger, and I was there for one of those periods. Uh, one more domestic assignment, and then I was the Deputy Chief of Mission and Charge d'Affaires, the Acting Ambassador at the U.S. Embassy to Sri Lanka and Maldives, where we were covering two countries out of one embassy. And then my last overseas assignment, I was Counselor for Public Affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Ankara, Turkey. So, well, you really have had a, most of your career has been serving internationally, that 35-year career. Yes. Now you're in Washington, D.C., so... Tell, you know, here you are, you, you grew up in, in uh, Marquette, uh, not the most rural area of the UP, but still a rural area. Um, uh, your family uh, were, uh, your father was a, a renowned professor at Northern, I had. He was. Uh, student. Uh, your mother was a historian, she wrote a book uh, about 75 years of history here at Northern. Uh, how did growing up here in Marquette, in the UP, See, how do you think it, it impacted your values as you served around the world and how, how you interacted around the world? Is there, are there some things that jump out at you? Well, I don't want to, you know, sort of overstate, quote unquote, small town values. Right. But, 
you know, growing up in Marquette, you you do learn to be a little self-sufficient. You learn to take care of yourself. You learn that you are expected to do well in school, um, to try your best at all the activities you undertake, uh, which which is sort of how I was raised, and I'm sure many others were raised. And so um, I think that can set you up for success in many different areas of uh, of life, just to to be to believe that you need to strive to do your best even if you don't always succeed uh, and then that carries you that carries you forward um, certainly i benefited from uh, you know many fine people in the community uh, some marvelous teachers at market senior high school uh, bob pearlberg who taught me history the, the late tom baldini who i had for political science and economics uh, and then, you know, many distinguished figures in our community, the late uh, Dan Mizuki, who, who just passed, uh, my own my own parents, as you mentioned, who contributed in, in, in many ways, other members of the Northern faculty, uh, people associated with, with the hospital, with the city government. You, had, you looked around and you saw role models, uh, I would say, and uh, people who inspired you again to, to try to do the best that you could do. So... Well, as a former president of Northern Michigan University, I, of course, encourage students to to go, go to Northern. But I'm also intrigued by the notion of young people. And I've talked to school counselors and teachers around the UP who talk about the sometimes difficult nature of convincing a student uh, in a very rural area in the UP to go to someplace like Ann Arbor or East Lansing or to Cambridge, uh, somewhere to go to, to school, leaving Marquette. And and I'm not so sure that it's different than a kid like me leaving Brooklyn, New York. But but what 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 how, how did how did that impact your life as a student at U of M? I mean, going leave did it not? It was just like any other student or did it have an impact when you left here? Was there hesitancy? I would say no hesitancy on my part. I'm the youngest of five children, and the other four all went to Michigan. I swore that I wouldn't, and yet there I was, uh, because it was hard to pass up such a great institution, uh, to be honest. Um, I would say I felt fairly comfortable at Michigan just because most, although certainly not all the school body, was other you know, relatively uh, academically successful kids from the Midwest. Uh, I, I think, frankly, I would have felt more out of water if I had accepted an offer from from Georgetown, you know, where, I, where, I, where I was admitted. Uh, that would have probably been a bigger struggle for me and maybe a little more comparable to what uh, what you did, David, coming from New York City to uh, to the relative quiet of the Upper Peninsula. So what what uh, the other thing I'd like to talk a little bit about, I don't want to uh, keep you too long, but, you know, they, there is a very large growing writing about, a lot of written about it and a lot in the media about the, the people's faith in institutions, governmental institutions and and society and, and, and challenges. And uh, we, uh, not in a political sense, but in a, in, a, in a sense of the training that you had and the experience you had, how is your, you still... Talk a little bit about faith in the institution of foreign service and 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 policy, not the political side, but the policy and how how you feel. Sure. I would actually back up a little bit and and call it faith in the United States of America, because what I do, what is my honor to do is represent our nation 
And of course, it's not possible for me to represent all 300 million citizens of the United States, uh, but I do my best. And uh, much of my career has been devoted to what we call public diplomacy, which is to say engaging more or less directly with foreign publics in addition to, to foreign governments. And in that role, you have to be prepared to discuss honest and difficult truths about America. Uh, we used to call it telling America's story, warts and all, um, that you, you can't try to deceive people about the reality of the United States, which does not mean by any, that, that you undersell our achievements, our greatness as a nation, but you acknowledge where we have not lived up to, let's say, our American ideals. More specifically, the State Department and the Foreign Service, I, I benefit from being surrounded by colleagues who are committed to our national security, who are committed to advancing American interests overseas, whether that's political and security interests, whether that's uh, seeking opportunities for American business, uh, of course, looking after American citizens who may be uh, in situations of one kind or another overseas. And really, with very few exceptions, the people that I call colleagues are great to work with, and we really believe in the mission. Of course, we can be buffeted by political winds. We all work for the government elected by the American people. The American people choose a president. The president appoints the secretary of state. The Senate confirms the secretary of state, and they give us our direction. And sometimes, to go back to the example of my professor at Michigan, sometimes individuals say, I can't do that. Uh, and resigning certainly does occur. Uh, most people, most of the time, you know, recognize the need to advance those policies, even if it means um, stomaching a certain amount of, of displeasure or dislike because we are committed career professionals and that's what our job is. And, and to a certain degree, it's very uh, similar to my life in the military, which was you had to accept certain principles and certain things. You may gulp a little bit. You may... you. you you may not, uh, it may not make you smile, but you you go and do what you need to do mm -hmm. or you mm -hmm. design. Uh, yes. It's still a good, a, 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 there's plenty of opportunities to serve within that. It, it, speaking as serving, as we close here, have you thought about your post career as far as you got 35 years in? You've got certainly more years in you there in the Foreign Service. Any thoughts about, about after Foreign mm. Service? So many, so many possibilities and so many ideas. Um, but I haven't, my thinking hasn't coalesced around anything. Uh, if I'm fortunate, I'll have maybe two more overseas assignments. Uh, and then we'll see what that might lead to. But uh, Foreign Service people sometimes simply go into a quieter retirement. Uh, sometimes they go into uh, teaching jobs or educational jobs. Uh, people will sometimes go into the private sector as, as sort of international representatives for corporations. There are a variety of ways in which our our skill set, I think, can be applied uh, domestically. But in my case, uh, case sera sera, whatever will be, will be. Will be. That's a good answer. Right. So, it, it, as we close, how was your high school reunion? You were just here for it, right? Was it just just here? We met at the Elks Club. It was great. There were, I think, seventy-five or eighty of us. Wow! Um, and you know, my class from MSHS was, I think, about three hundred and fifty. And so we didn't all know each other, uh, but I got to meet people that I maybe hadn't known uh, forty years ago. 
uh, and then to get uh, reacquainted with with some people who had really been good friends uh, in in the corridors of Marquette Senior High. It was very nice to see everybody again. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I, one of the things I love about that, including a university alumni uh, reunions, is the chance for people to share about what they've done and how they've grown from where they were and um, their lives have progressed beyond going to Andy's bar in Marquette or, uh, or that's a, that's a pretty good life, but yeah, yes. that's a great life. Well, the blind pig in Ann Arbor. Uh, 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 you got uh, it. So, uh, well, that's great. And it, I enjoyed having coffee with you the other day and, uh, catching up and thank you for doing this. I, I really, uh, uh, we're, working on a program now to encourage more students to consider uh, public service. As, 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 so this is this is a great addition to that for us. So thank you, Robert Hilton uh, of Marquette uh, in Washington, D.C., and uh, good luck to you, and uh, stay in touch with us. Thanks very much, David. Happy to do it and talk again. Bye now. You've been listening to the Rural Insights Podcast. Brought to you by the Rural Insights Institute, working to ensure that rural citizens and policymakers alike have the information necessary to make good decisions. If you enjoy our content, make sure to subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel. You can also subscribe to our weekly email newsletter by visiting ruralinsights.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.